So welcome everybody to the Thrive Co-Living YouTube podcast. Always a mouthful uh, to say that. Um, our website is thrivecolivingcommunities.org and we're a co-living concept that's on the move. So I want to welcome Bonnie Stith with us today. She is a leadership and cybersecurity coach and she has a cool background uh, as the former director of the CIA Center for Cyber Intelligence. So she's got a lot to share, um, some really neat experiences, and uh, obviously a depth of understanding about security and especially cybersecurity. So I'm tickled to have her here. And this marks a a change in the focus of our podcast. Pretty much uh, until now, we focused almost exclusively on different aspects of co-living, of our concept, solar energy, um, rainwater capture, just, just focused on the different segments. And one of the things that has always been in our plan was to uh, focus on programming and we, we're still in the early concept phase, conceptual phase, so we don't have our uh, facility yet. We're, we're in, the, in the works with it. But when we do have that, we want to invite interesting people that are doing cool things, have great stories to tell, and to, to share those stories and to support each other to advance the things that we're passionate about. Uh, and to share about those things. There'll be business topics, there'll be political topics, there'll be all sorts of topics. And so Bonnie, uh, her appearance here starts the beginning of that trend. And I welcome you and I'm really excited to find out more. So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I'm, I'm glad to be part of a new concept because I, I'm a real passionate about innovation. So, um, so I think the Thrive community is a, a really innovative idea and it's a great way to use the space that's already there and, and bring people together in meaningful ways. So, um, so thanks for what you're doing. This is awesome. Great. Thank you. So uh, let's start with the present. Uh, you're, sure. uh, you left the agency a year or so ago and started this practice, um, or at least I think a year or so ago. So tell me about what you're passionate about now with your coaching, leadership coaching, and how it relates to cyber? Uh, that's a great question. I, I actually retired about four years ago. And so, oh, um, but, but before I left, I, I, got, um, I was very um, involved in coaching at the leadership level. Um, I'd gotten certified as a, as a coach. And while foundationally all coaching comes back to the people and their lives, um, I firmly believe that people deserve good leaders. And, um, and while some people might say that leaders are born and leaders are natural, um, in my experience, actually leaders are developed and leaders grow um, through those developing activities and, um, and can always bear to learn more if they stop and take um, time and assess where they need to grow. So, um, so be, I became very involved in helping develop the leaders around me um, as um, what I called my give back on my way out. So, um, so leading a center was, was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful culmination of a great career, but, um, but really if, if I had to say, what's my legacy, 
It was to show that you can help develop leaders and you can create the space that people deserve to work in. So, um, so that's, that's really what drives me right now is, is working with people to help them be the leaders they can be, um, particularly because I think people deserve it. And do you focus on any particular business type, uh, government, private, um, public? I've worked mostly outside of government since I, um, since I retired because um, I think there's a lot of effort inside government to work on leadership. But um, I think in many respects, the private and the nonprofit sector lag behind a little bit because, um, because they, it's not that they don't value the leadership development. It's just that people um, grow up into those roles and mimic the people that they, they follow and sometimes don't stop to assess what were the traits that they liked the most? What were the traits that they liked the least? They just become the people they follow. And, um, and in today's world where this workforce, it's really a buyer's market with respect to the people wanting to work for you, um, they will vote with their feet a lot. If they're not being led well, if they're not being energized, if they're not being engaged, um, there's a number of other opportunities for them and they are very, very quick to move. So that, that whole loyalty about I've, I've been here forever and I'm gonna stay here forever, those days are over. People move much more quickly and um, there's a much more gig and entrepreneurial quality to the, today's generation. So um, they're just not gonna stick around. So if you want them to stay, you gotta figure out how to engage them. And, um, and you have to lead them well. So. Would you say that government historically has focused more and provided more resources for employees at all levels on training and spent more on training than the private sector or the not-for-profit sector? You know, I think, well, so in my experience, because I did some, some work in the resource arena, um, one of the first things that always gets cut anytime finances or funds get constrained is training. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that just seems to be the easiest one to throw out the door because everybody wants to focus on mission, 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 or product. Um, sadly, um, the product starts to dry up because um, the focus on the people dries up. And training is all about people. It's about you know, helping them grow to be more. It's about developing the leaders that you want for the future. It's about that future visioning piece that, um, that a lot of people forget in the here and now as they're just trying to keep the lights on. And so, um, so if you're not investing in your workforce, you're actually not investing in your future. And I, I think that often gets lost in the mix because um, a lot of managers and leaders think that training is a luxury. Um, they don't view it as a necessity. And a lot of employees view it as a necessity, not a luxury. And so, um, so, you know, I always advocated as a way to engage the workforce or to reward people was have cool training opportunities for them to go to, um, you know, reward them with time away from the office to go re-energize and build and regrow and, and strengthen some of their skills. Um, because I, I found they came back with a different enthusiasm for what they were doing. So, um, so I can, I can speak, I can speak to the agency and the value they put on leadership training um, and, you know, and the value they put on coaching in the organization, because I think we were one of the early adopters of coaching. And, um, and the person that brought it in um, was a friend of mine. And so from the early days, I knew, you know, I knew of coaching and, and she was, she's a fabulous coach. So, um, so I had the pleasure of getting to work with her as my coach for a while. And then, um, and then decided that it was a role I really wanted to take on myself because um, a lot of people think, oh, you give great advice, you'd make a good coach. It's actually not about advice. It's about pulling the wisdom out of the people about all they want to be um, as they grow up and move forward in, um, in that, that role that they wanna take on. So, um, so if there's something I think I'm pretty good at, it's, um, it's actually pulling wisdom out of people 
as opposed to pumping wisdom into people because I'm still on my own learning journey. So, um, so that's how I do it. There's a favorite, favorite quote of mine uh, from Illusions by Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I'm going to botch it, but uh, he said something like, learning is realizing what we already know. Teaching is helping others realize they know it too. And doing is demonstrating that we know it. We're all learners, teachers, and doers. Yeah, and, and you know, and it, it's so many times somebody will say, well, how do you know that? And I'll say, well, you know, actually wisdom comes through experience. So, um, you know, we had, a, we have a swimming pool and somebody jumped in to save a little boy who had, you know, precipitously jumped in the pool and she had her phone on her. And so, um, so she had this wet phone and I went in and got a bag of those little, you know, those dry sacks that you get in like your shoes and everything else and said, here, stick your phone in this. And she says, oh, I, I heard you put it in rice. And I said, well, I said, I'm just going to tell you that the experience has led to the wisdom to know that, that this is really a better idea. And, and it's because I jumped in the swimming pool with my phone in my pocket. So, um, so you know, so sometimes you got to step back and say, well, what works better? And, um, and look for um, how you can build your own wisdom, but also lend that wisdom to others. But I think that most people are wiser than they give themselves credit for. And when you really start to talk to them and ask them those questions that draw that wisdom out, um, they're surprised at what they know. They're surprised at what they can do. Um, and sometimes they don't give themselves enough credit for the wisdom they have. Matter of fact, I think Maybe because we don't look, we tend not to look inside. We look mm -hmm. externally. We tend and to go external to look for somebody to, you know, tell me what I need to know, as opposed to um, giving ourselves credit for what we already know, because we've either seen it happen. And so there's that stored memory or we've lived it. Um, and maybe we were told we did it wrong but we didn't give ourselves credit for going back and doing it right the next time. Mm -hmm. All we know is that we got reinforced for that wrongness. So, so I found that that's, that's a successful way to view people. Um, the coaching school that I trained through um, one of their, 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 you know, foundational pieces was that people are naturally creative, resourceful and whole. And when you start to switch your thinking to viewing the people that you meet in that fashion, naturally creative, resourceful and whole, imagine how much more credit you give them just for showing up um, and how excited you are to get to know what they're bringing into the conversation because they are naturally creative, resourceful and whole. So, um, so it's a different way to, to, I think, approach life. You know, um, we're talking about adult learners and I think this should be for another episode, but uh, think about applying those assumptions and principles to elementary, middle, and high school students, and not just to adult learners. Uh, and we've got some ideas around ed opening up education um, and creating co-learning and co-working uh, facilities where people are working together. Anyway, not, another day. Yeah, we, should, we should circle back on that because I've done some reading and I think there's some outstanding ideas on how to do that. Good. Absolutely. I'm sure you're a student of education in general and not just adult. So. Yeah, I think I'm just a student of people. I just, people fascinate me at all ages. So, um. so let's move to the cyber and ah. uh, CIA experience. Um, so my first question for you is, um, as I was thinking about it, there, there are different personality types that lead people to be in, to choose certain professions. ER doctors, for example, 
Um, I was a mediator in an earlier life. There's definitely a, a personality type. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if you have over the years um, sort of saved a, a group of traits uh, of personality types that would be drawn to the to intelligence and the CIA. So, so the thing I would say about the CIA is actually it's a collection of the most interesting types of people you'd ever want to meet. And, um, and I think um, one of the hardest things about leaving um, the agency was the knowledge that nowhere would I ever be involved with a group of people who were um, as smart collectively, just smart um, as um, I think as, as dedicated to, um, to doing the right thing, um, because I, I mean, I worked with great patriots and, and patriotism is a word that's kind of bandied about a little bit these days. Um, but, but I will say they were people that, that firmly believed that, that while there are a lot of countries out there, what we have is the best. And so, um, and this system is worth really supporting in um, meaningful ways and, and they give their lives for it. So, um, so I was working with people who, who had that level of passion for, for this place that we call home. And then, um, and then just the ability to imagine the impossible and how they would go about solving problems. I mean, there was nothing that you couldn't get a group of people together to, um, to work through in the most incredibly imaginative and wickedly elegant solutions if you unleash them. I mean, sometimes you had to rein them back a little bit because the, the ideas would get a little bit, you know, like out there. But, um, but, you know, I knew I would never be around people that every day made me feel honored to get to be part of them. Because um, I think a lot of us take for granted sometimes that, you know, um, many of us who are type A high achievers uh, think that we're always the smartest person in the room. And, um, and I can tell you there was never a day that I felt that I was the smartest person in the room. And even leading the center, I was in awe of the talent and the knowledge of, um, of the people I worked with, young and old, and how they could run circles around me and their ability to imagine the next you know, great feat that we could accomplish. So, uh, so let, me, let me mention some of the obvious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's gotta be adrenaline junkies uh, in the agency, uh, people that love to travel, um, uh, love different cultures. What, what were mm-hmm. some of the things that drew you at the beginning and, and keep playing with me on this? So, uh, so I was a foreign language major. You know, I grew up in California. My dad was Navy. So we traveled around and we moved different places as a kid. And, um, and I started studying foreign languages when I was in junior high school. So, um, so I always had this idea that I wanted to go to Europe. So I studied French, you know, cause like, you know, if you study French, you can go to Europe. Um, I was really blessed between my junior and senior year of high school to get to go on a study trip abroad and spent the summer traveling around Europe studying. So, um, so then my goal became go back. And um, so my junior year of college, I studied abroad in the South of France. And so, um, so my languages were French and Spanish. Well, so, you know, so what else do you want to do when you like study languages, but like figure out how to live overseas so you can like have a job and shop. You know, I think at 22, most of us have um, have pretty narrow ambition about what we want to do as far as saving the world. It's really about, you know, cool experiences, excuse me, and shopping. So, um, <laughs> so I answered an ad in the school newspaper. Um, you know, there was this little ad in the school newspaper that said, if you're interested in 
foreign affairs and living abroad and foreign languages and, you know, and, and, you know, international politics, you know, apply here. And, um, and so I thought, well, that looks like it's right up my alley. And so, um, so I did. And um, less than a year later, I packed up my car and drove to Washington DC to start my career with the CIA. Not really knowing what I was going to be doing at the time, because, um, you know, at the time that I was applying, there really wasn't a lot of information that was, was out there about what the careers were. Um, now you can go to the CIA website and there's so much information there about what the careers are, what the opportunities are, what, what life is like. And you can talk to people. There's, there's just a wealth of information and there's books beyond belief about, about what's possible. But, um, but in the day, there wasn't that much out there. And so, um, but all I knew was it was gonna be a grand adventure. And I didn't view myself setting off on the career that was gonna take me away for the rest of my life. I just thought I was gonna go do something cool for a couple of years. And then like, you know, most 22 year olds, I, I was planning about two to three years in advance at best. Um, and then I'd just go home and, you know, grow up and have a normal life in California. Um, the reality is, is once I was in, every day was so interesting. And the people I was with were so different than anybody I'd ever been around before that the years just went fast. And, you know, one day I woke up and I'd been in 10 years. And, um, and at that, the 10 year mark is kind of the Fisher cut bait point a lot of times about, you know, if I'm going to stay, you know, then I'm going to stay for a career or if I'm going to leave am I, now's the time because I got to get out. But um, I couldn't figure out who would hire me for the skills I had at that point. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, I spoke Spanish and French at that point and, um, you know, and, and who would hire me? Because I, I really didn't know what skills I had. Um, I just knew what I was good at. And so, um, and so, you know, so, and I stayed. And um, the beauty of the agency is there's so many opportunities to continue to grow your skills. So you're not just stuck doing one thing for 30 years. Um, you can move to other areas and you can do other things. And I took advantage of every opportunity I could get to grow and learn more. And, you know, and it paid off. I mean, I wound up running the cyber center for crying out loud. So. Um, so talk a little bit. I bet most lay people uh, that don't have exposure to the agency think that the only thing that you can do within the agency is go and collect intelligence, uh, interrogate people, uh, plant, plant, yeah. uh, uh, get intelligence. So can you share some of the different silos? I, I'm sure that they don't call it that, but the different things that you can do within the, the CIA. You know, imagine a big multi, um, I would say a big global organization um, and, and all the things it takes to keep that organization moving forward. So from the perspective of, I mean, you have the people that are, you know, that are, the, if you will, the salespeople, right? So you've got people that are working overseas and in other places gathering intelligence. Um, but there's a big organization behind them, you know, that, um, that allows them to be able to do that work. So there's the technology piece. I mean, I will tell you that so many of the things that we take for granted in everyday life now were developed with the intention of feeding the government um, need. So, you know, you think of the miniaturization of your phones and your cameras and stuff, you know, look at the history of some of that. Um, it didn't start because somebody thought, wow, this is great. I could sell it to people and they would buy it forever. Um, it started as a, as a need to do a job for the government. So, so the science and technology piece of the organization um, is beyond your wildest imagination. And frankly, um, the people that work there, I used to like 
just wish I could like touch them and some of it would rub off on me and I would become automatically creative um, because what they were doing was so incredibly neat. And it was so far in the future. Think of the, the most futuristic thing you can ever imagine. And they're talking about it. And somebody is sitting around dreaming how it's going to work. So then you couple that with people that can take disparate pieces of information and turn it into the story that helps you understand what's going on. So the analytic side, I mean, the critical thinking and the ability to find data to support, you know, this story that's being told or the data that tells the story. Um, they've got the mechanisms and the training to do it beyond, beyond anybody's imagination. And again, it's a, it's, it tends to be, you know, I, I think um, the people that are drawn to that are people that really like digging deep into information and so, and really piecing it together in meaningful ways. Um, there's the administrative side. So, you know, obviously you're going to have, you know, the finance um, plans, you know, the people that do logistics, all of those pieces that, that run a building, right? So, and then there's a security police force. So it goes from everything you can imagine in a multinational corporation, but they're in support of an intelligence mission. And so, um, so it's all the bits and pieces that go with that. I would say if, if you can imagine it, you can be it. Um, there's that many pieces to it. So, um, so the opportunity to not just stay doing one thing, but to move to other pieces and learn constantly presents itself with the organization. Because the goal is to get you there for a career, not to just get you there for a couple of years. And probably at every function that exists in business or the not-for-profit world exists there. Graphic artists, people to put together presentations. Um, it, I mean, it, probably if, you've everything. Seen the, if you've seen the movie Argo um, about the disguise master um, that, that helped bring the people out of Iran during the, um, you know, the siege of the embassy. Yeah. Again, you know, I mean, there's that piece of the agency that is, I mean, so much of what you see in Hollywood with the disguises and stuff, a lot of those people um, and a lot of those techniques, you know, originated with, um, you know, government work. And so, um, so again, I mean, there's, there's room for just about everything you could imagine um, in one shape, wait, you know, one shape or, or other. Um, so they're just looking for people that really are dedicated and committed, you know, and ready to, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, I was also thinking about the CIA vis-a-vis -vis the State Department. And I would imagine that there are some similarities between people who work at each agency and, and some differences. Why would somebody, and I'm sort of directing this, uh, or would like you to direct this to someone that might be thinking about a career in one of those two uh, fields. What would lead somebody, what's the difference? And, and what would lead somebody to work in state versus CIA? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of different motivations. I mean, you know, diplomacy is a big piece of US foreign policy. In fact, I would say, you know, I mean, diplomacy always comes first. You know, I mean, if you can solve it through diplomatic means, why would you go to war? Let's be honest. And so, um, so I, you know, again, I think the biggest piece of the agency that um, particularly in the, you know, in the overseas arena is that you really don't talk about it as much. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, you know, I always said if it made the front page, then it probably wasn't a good, a good deal. So, um, whereas in the State Department world, I mean, you're really out and about and moving very openly 
in the society in a different way. But that diplomacy piece is so important to um, US foreign policy. And I think, um, you know, and I would never denigrate the people that, um, that take that job on because it's really, really hard. Always, you know, keeping, you know, keeping in mind that you represent the government and whether, you know, and, and again, whether we like what's going on or not, it's, it's really not material. You still represent that, that government and that system. You know, I mean, we represent democracy and that is what we are to the rest of the world. And I would imagine, and you're, you're sort of saying this, that uh, CIA operatives and leaders are doing, conducting diplomacy all the time. And the smart ones probably rely on it uh, more than the other techniques. Well, I think, a- you know, I, I think what, what goes on is, you know, is what goes on in front of the camera and what goes on behind the camera. And maybe that's, you know, that's the way you would couch it a little bit more mm-hmm. is, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a world that goes on behind the camera and there's the world that goes on in front of the camera. And so, um, and both of those have um, reason and both of them have mission. And so, um, so I think they're both equally important in many ways. <clears throat> you know, um, from my, I, I'm a, a politi- political observer. I, I'm a student of politics and government. I really enjoy it. Um, but it appears to me that there is a cycle with views of the CIA where sometimes you're revered, uh, sometimes you're hated, despised, um, and there's this, there's this cycle to it, and it depends on what just happened. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Abu Ghraib, lots of things happen and lead mm-hmm. to it, and then there's there's a pullback, and then there's somebody that comes in that advances. So what was the, assuming that, that I'm correct, what was the atmosphere and when you first entered the agency? And can you talk about some of the peaks and valleys in how the agency mm-hmm. was, was viewed during your tenure? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think it's cyclical, certainly. I mean, I joined during the Central America days. And so, um, you know, I mean, coming out of Vietnam, going into Central America, I mean, you know, the agency is, um, they're the first ones in and the last ones out. And, um, and I think, you know, um, perspective tends to be, um, you know, maybe, you know, in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, what's, what's allowed under, you know, one leader is not necessarily allowed under another sometimes. So, um, so there, there is a sense that, you know, that, that it's good people doing the right thing, but sometimes um, the thing changes. And so, um, so, you know, again, I, you know, I, you know, I, I spent many years, you know, in, um, you know, in the Spanish speaking areas. So there was a lot going on there and then, you know, things shifted and there was a lot going on there. I think, I, I think you have to separate the people from the, the, maybe the narrative sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, it's always nice to have a villain, you know, and, and it's, I, you know, I always said we were kind of the meat in the sandwich sometimes. So um, it was, um, it was easier to point a finger over there than really focus on the other things that were happening. And sometimes I think it was used as a distraction. So, um, but, um, but again, the people I knew and the people I worked with, um, 
you know, they were all good people. And so, um, but, you know, sometimes the narrative changes and that's, mm. I think that's the way I would put it. So, um, and I, I, you know, the leaders that I worked for, um, I mean, I, you know, my, I was, I'm one of those people that says, you know, I, I ask some of the leaders that I, I work with now, you know, like to name their top three leaders they've ever worked for. And then what were the attributes of those people? And, um, and I can tell you, I can name the leaders I worked for. And I can tell you why they, why they were my top three leaders. And they all shared very, very similar attributes mm. in that um, they were very people focused. Um, they, you know, they believe that leaders um, take the blame and, um, you know, for failure and the, um, and their subordinates take the credit for success. And, um, and they stood behind their people hundred percent and they led with their hearts. And so I think, um, that would be um, something that I would say. And they were all visionaries. I mean, they knew, they knew what the plan was. They knew where we were supposed to be going, um, how to get there. And, um, and they allowed people to, um, to move forward in meaningful ways. So, um, so I liked that style of leadership. What were the proudest moments um, that you had? And I'm talking about macro now. What, what were the periods the events, the world events that we were participating in that made you the proudest? And then, of course, I'll ask you the, the flip side of that as well. You know, that's, that's really interesting. You know, what, and again, what I know is that, um, that there was never a call that wasn't answered. You know, I mean, when there was something significant going on, um, many, you know, many of us were very much involved in that thing. And, um, and so, you know, many of the great things that haven't happened, um, that people won't know about, you know, um, there was agency, an agency role in that, that made me very proud. Um, I would say that, um, certainly, um, you know, some of the, the, um, the takedowns of terrorists over, over the years, um, I mean, in protecting the homeland in significant ways. I, I think, um, you know, I, I mean, again, I know some of those people and, and they are heroes. So, um, but, but at the, but the stuff that goes on behind the camera, you know, is the stuff that, um, that you're the proudest of because um, people don't know about it, but you do. And it was significant. I bet it's strange to have knowledge of the truth behind a story where the story is not necessarily being told, fully told, or uh, I bet it's, there's a, I'm, I'm projecting, but I would feel a little smug about it, you know, that I, that I know, hmm. I know the more of the reality because there's so much of it that is not seen. You know, I, I think that it's, it's not as smug so much as it is proud that there are people that, that don't need to be seen in order to be, um, to view themselves as successful. Because, you know, in a day and age where, you know, like, you know, um, there's a lot of information on the internet and people are, are constantly putting themselves out there for certain things um, and maybe admired for things that, you know, that make me scratch my head sometimes. Um, you know, these are people that are making a significant contribution, but they're doing it um, without expectation of acknowledgement or thanks. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. And, um, and they believe in what they're doing. 
And so um, I think when you know those people, um, it makes you really, really proud to just to be in a room with them, much less part of an organization with them. I mean, it's, um, as I said, you know, I mean, one of the hardest things to acknowledge was that I would never again be in a place where there were that many people that just, you know, I walked around all the time going, gosh, I'm so lucky. So, um, cause somehow or other I stumbled and I got into this room. It's like, wow, how did I get this lucky? So um, what, a, what about when you heard either on the news or whispered around these conspiracy theories that are so outrageous. I'll give you one that I think is the most outrageous is that we knew about September, the September 11th attacks. Mm -hmm. And we, for whatever reason, because we loved the Saudis, that that we didn't do anything and nobody blew the whistle, that we just let it happen. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, and, and that's a hard one because, you know, again, it's that Tuesday morning quarterbacking, right? So, I mean, there's, in a world where there's a lot of information, it's how do you get all the information that tells the whole story in one place at the right time? And so, um, so it's easy to go looking for it afterwards. But, but, it, but when it's all going on, it's very hard sometimes to get the whole story in one place at one time so that, that you know. Um, I think in many respects, um, you know, I had the good, good fortune to attend um, uh, some professional military education with my husband. Um, when he was an Air Force officer, when we were um, in San Antonio. And, um, and we were, you know, at that point, we were studying, you know, like future thinking on war. And so I don't, I don't know how many people were really surprised to find out there were terrorists out there. Um, I think the bigger issue um, for me was now that we know, what do we do? That was the bigger issue for me because, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, those of us of a certain generation can remember exactly what we were doing the morning of 9-11. And, you know, and I remember, you know, calling my husband and saying, um, are you watching the news? And he said, yeah, I'm watching the news. I said, so they're here. I mean, and that was the way I put it. So they're here. Say it again. So they're here. Uh-huh. Because, because that was the reality of it. You know, I mean, all, all of the signs were pointing to, you know, to the fact that we were going to at some point have to square off, you know, in a significant way with, you know, with the forces that, that didn't want us to exist as a nation. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. You know, and the non-state actors at that point were becoming, you know, more and more of, a, of an issue that we were paying attention to. But to say that people knew about it and they, they wanted it to happen, um, boy, I'll tell you what. You know, it's like finding a needle in the haystack. You know, imagine, imagine finding a bunch of needles, you know, in a, in a big field of hay because, um, because that's the way the intelligence business is. Sometimes you get a piece of information, but you have to figure out what that piece of information me- means. Um, you know, and, and, and although all of us are trained on, you know, and going and looking for information, the thing is a piece of information has got to get you down a path where you start looking for other pieces. Um, 2001 was a different time. You know, 2021 is a different place because frankly, um, there's so much data out there now. I would say it's actually even harder because now you've got all of these databases full of data. How do you know which one to go to to get the data you need that's gonna get you the answer you need so that you can you know, have that early warning capability? Uh, 
you know, the, the computer revolution and, you know, and, and the advance of the cyber world has actually made it harder rather than easier in so many ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, so woulda, shoulda, coulda, I think we can all say that a lot about a lot of things in our lives. But, but to think that somehow or other there was somebody out there that had all the answers and they just didn't say anything. Yeah, I can't imagine there being a lot of high-level chatter that uh, security experts were seeing and hearing, and they just said, oh, no, we're just going to ignore that. Um, it's, just, it's just that a, a Saudi national entering flight school <clears throat> is probably not going to ri- rise to the level of You know, again, I mean, it was, it's a, you know, it's a different time and place. And it's all about what you think is significant in that event. And, and so, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's the old indications and warnings that the, you know, the military talks about. So, um, you know, I remember, you know, having an admiral ask me one time, like what I thought was an indication of warning. And, um, you know, and, and, and we were so different in what we viewed as something that would cause us to look, you know, look a second time at something. But, but it really comes down to, um, you know, what causes you to take a second look? And so, um, and, 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 you know, and, and if it's not what you're looking for, you know, think about, you know, I mean, going to the doctor, right? So if you go to a kidney doctor and there's nothing wrong with your kidneys, do you think he's going to check your lungs? And so it's what you're looking for and, you know, and, and what you see that dictates what you do next. Mm. And so um, I think, humans are humans. And I think this idea that somebody has got all the knowledge in the world and that they deliberately didn't do something is, is not a stand that I would take. Let's put it that way. And again, because I, I actually believe that humans are humans. And so, um, and, and I know me, I miss stuff all the time. So, um, in, you know, in a day and age where there's so much going on, you know, how much do you miss? So, um, where you go like, shoot, I should have known that. How could you know that? I mean, my grandson came over last night and poked all my needles into my pincushion. This is the second time he did it. And I said to my husband, like, doggone it, he did it again. But yet, I should have put my pincushion away before he got here. So, so actually, who's at fault for this whole thing? You know, him because he thinks it's funny to put my pins in my pincushion, my needles in my pincushion, or me because I should have just put it away. So, uh, you know, should have, would have, could have, right? Let's move. Uh, let's move. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Let's move to cyber security. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the most recent public event was this hacking involving Microsoft and uh, yeah, solar winds. something wins. Yeah, solar winds. Yeah. yeah. So is, you know, talk a little bit about that and what we what we know, what we don't know, you know, I think they were watching it for a while um, because you've got to see what they're doing. I don't tell us, tell us what we've learned through this episode. Well, I think with respect to solar winds, we've really learned that we need to pay attention to our supply chain. You know, and so, um, you know, when you, you know, when you buy a phone, you know, how many hands of this phone go through? I mean, what's in this phone? What are the components in this phone? You know, how do you know that that isn't somehow enabled for somebody to like, you know, like get all your data all the time, right? 
And so, um, so there's, there's the things that you open up that expose you to, you know, hackers. And then there's the things that are actually built into your computer that expose you to hackers. And solar winds is a case of things that are built in that expose you as opposed to, um, you know, the things that you enable necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, both of those are, you know, both of those are problems. And, um, you know, here's the reality of it. You know, I, I had a boss one time that, um, who again was a visionary in many ways. And, uh, you know, we talked about this whole idea of like, you know, what secrets are like now, right? You know, so, you know, when I, when I joined the agency, you know, hundred years ago and dinosaurs to walk the earth, um, you know, to get to a secret, it was usually on a piece of paper, right? And so, you know, I had to get to the guy who could go into the safe, you know, you know into the box that, that could get that piece of paper. Were um, they in journals? Oh, it could be journals? in anything. It could be in anything, right? It could be on a napkin for crying out loud. But, you oh. know, but it was locked up someplace, right? Or it was in somebody's head and they, they were going to get it, you know, from that person in person. Um, but, you know, but you think about now, virtually everything is on a computer someplace or in in a cloud or on the cloud yeah in a cloud or you know on a hard drive or you know or, or stored on a phone or someplace in an app i mean everything now is digital and so um so so that's changed the whole dynamic of the business in so many ways um and it's created opportunity for both sides in significant ways you know to get to treasure troves you know that were inaccessible you know years ago without, you know, without somebody like carting out boxes of stuff, you know, now you can bring out everything you want on something else like this. Right. So, um, so it's amazing, you know, what the difference is now and what the opportunities for, um, for mischief, if you will, right. Are now and how much more you have to pay attention to where you're getting your things and who's manufacturing them. So, so, you know, do you want to, um, you know, trust, you know, that, that that company that was bought out, you know, a couple of times and is now, you know, run by, you know, basically one of these, you know, these companies that goes and buys out failing, you know, organizations or, or businesses, do you want to trust that they're doing the right thing and how they manufacture your goods? And where do the, all the components in your equipment come from? So, um, so you know, there's a shift now to start moving stuff back to the United States or, you know, or to places where there's more trust that, you know, what's being done there um, is, is maybe a little bit more controlled, that mm -hmm. there isn't going to be an opportunity to do something like that. But, but the reality of it is um, that's going to be really hard to do. And, um, and, you know, and all I could think was like, wow, well done. Seriously. Well done. Well played. Because um because they struck gold. Mm. Um, and then there's there's a factor there that the amount of data is growing geometrically. Um, that's not the right term, but uh, increasing the rate of growth. So it's also probably harder to find what you're looking for because there's so much of it. If you're a hacker or if you're a, a security cybersecurity person. There's so much more to see and so much more happening. Um, well, I mean, so there's, you know, there's, I mean, what you call like, you know, like just lucky, right? There's like, wow, that I was really lucky. Or there's the, um, you know, this is what I'm really after. 
And so, I mean, certainly intellectual property is under attack in, in ways, I mean, over the last, I would say 25 years, we've seen intellectual property attacks and, and theft happen in, in, you know, to the extent that we can't even begin to measure what's been lost. Um, you know, and, and you know, so a lot of the conversations I used to have with people is because they were like, wow, you know, I mean, we'll just make more. And, I, and, and in a world that's very disposable, you know, speed to market actually matters. Because if I get speed to market matters. So if somebody steals your plan and they can make it without having to invest the money in the R&D, and even if it's an inferior product, if they get to the market first, because everything's so disposable anyway, what do you lose out on in, you know, in dollars, in real dollars, if they steal it and they market it first? You know, and you can say, well, mine's better and it's the original and, and that one's inferior and you know, and I mean, and the batteries burn up and cause holes in your pants and might burn your skin. I mean, all of those things, right? But I've already got it. It costs me less and I'm only going to keep it a year or two anyway. So who cares? And so this speed to market piece really matters. And, and them stealing it cuts out all of the R&D dollars that they might have to spend. So, I mean, there are countries whose whole, you know, industries are based on, you know, somebody else's stuff that they just manufacture cheaper and they didn't have to invest anything in the R&D. Is it mostly the Chinese? That's who we hear uh, the fingers pointed towards, but, or is it other smaller Eastern European countries? Is well, it everybody? I, mean, I, would, I would say, you know, the Chinese we hear a lot about, but there's others out there for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, if you don't, it, it's kind of like having a cyber program. I mean, you don't have to build it yourself. You can just go buy one. You know, I mean, it's, it's for sale, you know, there's hackers for hire, there's, you know, there's all kinds of things. So, um, so, you know, criminals are criminals. They'll, you know, they'll basically hire out to anybody. It's, it's, it's a, it's much more commoditized in, 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 I think in significant ways. And there are people that will buy this stuff. So, um, so it's an industry, you know, even in China, it tends to be an industry. I didn't read that much about this recent uh, revelation, but mm-hmm. It sounded like the one of the significances of it was that it was so broad that there were so many mm-hmm. companies, um, agencies that were that were hacked. Uh, well, that this thing was really yeah. huge. Is that the the defining characteristic of this? Well, I, I, you know, it's the one we know. Okay. So I would tell you, it's, it's the one we know. Um, you know, Microsoft put out a patch very quickly to disable it. But, but, you know, but how often do you patch your system, you know? And so, I mean, you know, there's so much that's built onto so many systems that, that you know, those patches sometimes can take down a whole system. So, so companies are real careful about, you know, when they patch and what they patch. And so, so even if you know it's there, um, what will the patch do to the rest of the workings of your system? And so there's a lot to be weighed in this, in this space, but I, you know, again, it's the one we know right now. <laughs> I mean, I would never be so naive to think that there aren't more. So, you know, you mentioned the terms, the, uh, the discussions, the future of warfare. Is mm-hmm. this the future of warfare with, mm-hmm. uh, putting out utility grids and uh, dams and just- Well, you know, I mean, so, I mean, if you think about it, you actually don't, 
here's the thing about this. Um, it isn't that easy. And I think, you know, it's, it's doable. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. Um, it's not a matter of, you know, a bunch of guys sitting around a pith helmets, like hacking at will. I mean, there's a lot more preparation that has to go into this. And so, um, but if I can invest up front and have the access to go ahead and do that, it kind of saves a rocket, right? It saves a bomb. I mean, I don't have to fly a plane overhead with people inside of it, you know, and risk my people. So, um, so there is some utility to it. Do I think it will entirely replace um, war as we know it? No. You know, no. Well, but, um, I certainly think it's going to be used as a weapon of influence in significant ways. And maybe just letting us know or somebody know, I can do this. I can do this tomorrow. It certainly makes you very, um, I think, worried about what the possibilities could be, okay? And, and, and there's a lot of messaging that goes on. I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the cyber hacks that we know about, um, you know, I mean, there's a very strong messaging. Think about Sony in North Korea, mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, think about some of the other ones that have occurred. Um, it certainly lets you know what's, what's out there and what they're capable of doing. And so, um, so there's very clear messaging. But, um, when, but I, I don't see it replacing war as we know it. When I also visual warfare on a more individual level, I think about 18-year-olds who have grown up playing video games and that they're – and I'm, I know this goes on anyway, but they're operating drones, uh, mm -hmm. you know, thousands, tens of thousands of miles away, and that that's what warfare will look like. There'll be no ground troops that they'll be all operating drones and missiles. Yeah. I, again, I don't see that. Hmm. I mean, I, I see all of these as, you know, as, as assistance and, you know, and, and other things that will be used. Um, I don't see them replacing anything. I mean, you know, that's the idea of, of you know, it's almost like, you know, there's no such thing as a, as a bloodless war really, but, um, I think that they are ways of, of you know, amplifying perhaps, maybe it's, maybe it's ways to amplify the conflict, mm -hmm. but I don't think it will replace what we know of to be, you know, kind of the classic, you know. Warfare. Or maybe just diversify, that there'll be more options available. Certainly, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I mean, it, it certainly has taken, you know, I, I think about, I don't know how many phone calls you've gotten today from somebody that like said that you ordered something from Amazon. Apparently my phone number is like, you know, come up on their list because I think I've gotten five or six of them. Um, but in 1986 in a Latin American country, I had a gentleman come up to me with a letter from a Nigerian prince, okay? That talked about transferring money to his bank account because he'd come into some money. And I mean, it's a story that, you know, that you've seen on the internet. I mean, this was 1986, okay? So, I mean, it's just actually made it possible to do more. It's like at a volume you can't believe now. Um, but it's the same old scam and, yeah. and it keeps going on because people keep buying it. You know, I mean, there are people who still do it, you know, even all these years later. And this is like, you know, I mean, we're talking 35 years later for crying out loud. So, um, so it, it has changed the face of it. Um, to some degree, it has not changed it. If that makes sense. There's still, yeah. you know, the tried and true methods, um, you know, that I think we'll utilize. We'll just add these in as like more. So um, I'm stuck in Bolivia and somebody stole my wallet with all my credit cards. Could you please wire me 
or yeah you know it's really interesting um a year or so ago well before the pandemic started clearly um i was asked to speak at a um at a woman's group and it was a an older you know church um oriented group i mean and i think you know i was you know it was very senior women let's put it that way i mean you know it went from about i think about 45 to about 85 so um and so i was talking to them just about basic phone you know hygiene phone security and so i you know i said like the number one thing you could do here is um is just pin lock your phone and then i had to say how many of you even know what i'm talking about here and they were like no i don't know what you're talking about and i said okay so so you see the screen where where these numbers come up and i have to push in numbers to like open my phone and they were like yeah i said that's what i mean just lock your phone and one lady said well well if i do that when i leave my phone at the grocery store like you know how will anybody know to call me to come get my phone and i said i think more to the point is how many of your friends might get a text or a message from you saying that you're in jail and you need bail money? And she was like, oh, I would hate for that to happen. That would be so embarrassing. I was like, if you don't lock your phone, that can happen if you lose your phone. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, so I had this, you know, this, this nun who was in her eighties afterwards come over and sit down with me and say, Bonnie, show me how to lock my phone. So it was just, you know, it was just basic stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, this, this whole cybersecurity, it, it comes from the most, you know, I mean, I think really like just pin lock your phone to, um, to, you know, are you patching your system? You know, when you see that thing, it pops up and says, Hey, there's a security patch. Do you click yes, install, or do you say, you know, later, you know, and, and you know, for the later that never comes. Um, yeah, time's changed. So uh, I just, my personal view on personal security is that I assume that there is no, there is no security so that everything I do can be discovered. And I just somebody. work, I work, I don't post on Facebook, political stuff. Um, and, and I, I assume that my Apple watch, if it's not communicating to my insurance company now that it will, and they'll know exactly you know, how many steps I'm walking and heart rate and pulse and all that. And I just try to, to take care of myself and walk my three or four miles several days a week and, uh, and essentially live, live a transparent, relatively transparent life. Well, I think you need to decide how much data you want to shed off um, as you go about your life. And, you know, several years ago, I was out in San Francisco and I was talking to the CEO of a company and he used the term um, that I had not heard before, but, but absolutely was a visual I could understand. And he said, you know, millennials shed data. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and it's, it, you know, I mean, you think about skin cells as you walk down the road, you know, like the stuff that's flying off of you. Um, that for me was so sobering, but so like, you know, I mean that you talk about something that like impacts you immediately. I was like, I had never thought about it like that. Right. Look at all the data you're shedding as you go about your life. You know, I mean, every time you access an app, every time, you know, you're, you're wearing your Apple watch. I mean, I know people that, you know, that have got Alexa or Google or something in their house. Right. Um, you know, I mean, the internet of things, I mean, everything you do is somehow or they're being collected and stored and analyzed and sold you know, to somebody who wants to sell you something else, um, you know, just decide how much you want out there about you and, um, you know, and, and be smart about it. That's all there is to it. I mean, so, you know, so I've decided, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm going to carry a cell phone. I mean, come on, like, really? Um, for me, social media is social media. 
and politics isn't social. So, I mean, if it ever was, it certainly isn't now. So, um, so, you know, we've got to, I mean, my house is like the no politics zone because, you know, it's like, listen, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody arguing. I don't want anybody getting ugly. Um, and, and frankly, I want to hear about it. So, um, so like, let's talk about what the grandchildren are doing. Let's talk about the new restaurants in town. Let's talk about like, when do we think this thing's going to be over? Did you get your shot? Um, let's talk about those kinds of things, but I do not want to have conversations about politics. Um, you know, and so social media is about your vacations and your grandchildren and, you know, and where you're traveling to, or, you know, or what you're cooking today or something interesting about you. Um, I just don't find your politics all that interesting. So, um, have you had this happen that you had a phone, uh, uh, excuse me, a person to person conversation like with your husband and you didn't type a Google search, you didn't look anything up on your phone, yeah. start getting ads for that topic you <coughs> talked about? You mean you think your phone is listening to you? <laughs> really? Here's what I, here's my theory. Yeah. That when we call, when we ask, Siri a question we ask it to start listening but we never ask it to stop listening so and I'll that, tell you I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about Siri is I, I don't like Siri to tell you the truth I, I mean I you know I'm, I'm happier typing it in because um, what I find is you know I can go on searches that are much more in-depth than Siri could take me so and and I don't want to wait for somebody else to do it so um so somehow or other I pressed the button and, and Siri came up one day and, and I, I couldn't get it to go away and I finally said, Siri, just go away. And this voice says to me, you could be nicer. And you say goodbye, Siri. And all I can think is like, I have just been chastised, you know, by a bot, for God's sakes. So, uh, you know, I mean, it was just like, oh, for crying out loud. Yeah. But, um, you know, I would just say that, you know, never assume that things aren't listening to you. Okay. Mm. So, um, and, and, and it's not about somebody else trying to like, you know, somehow or other, you know, get the inside scoop on you. Uh, most of the time it's about them trying to sell you something. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's the race to that, that percentage of a penny in your wallet that's really driving so much of this. Um, sure. And, you know, and so much of this data is being more and more commoditized and it's being bought and sold. And, um, and it's really about, you know, getting money from you for products. So, um, you know, so if you don't want it, block it. That's all I would say. You know? Yeah. Um, so, I, I feel like we need to start wrapping up. Sure. Um, although I could, I could talk with you. Yeah, I know we could go on forever. You're day. very interesting. Yeah. But I'd like to bring you, you mentioned uh, the women's group that you were talking mm -hmm. to. And I'd like to mention, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. When you joined the agency. Yeah. What was the percentage of women employees or, you know, yeah. Uh, in, not just in leadership, but there, where was it when you left and what was it like being a woman in that environment when there were so few there? Boy. Okay. So you really want to start wrapping it up with that question? Really? Um, well, <laughs> yeah, come on. You no, know, I don't so, mean immediately yeah, exactly. wrap it up, but I mean, sure. head towards that. So, you know, I joined the agency in the early 80s. And um, in the late 70s with the Carter administration, there had been a, um, a big layoff, a big rift at the agency and um, a reduction in force. And so 
So with the Reagan administration and, you know, in the Casey um, leadership there, there was a decision to go ahead and, um, and rebuild the agency. Of course, you know, they had Central America going on. So, um, but they were also looking to bring in more women at the time. So, you know, so if you've ever read any Malcolm Gladwell about, you know, the tipping point and, and things like that, timing sometimes can be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, just on getting your foot in the door. But the culture of the place, um, I mean, it, you know, it was, and um, it was very male oriented. And so, um, so one of the first significant pieces of advice I got um, was I'd better develop a thick skin. Because, um, you know, I mean, I think, it, I'm certainly not alone in this. Um, you know, I, I tend to take things personally. And, um, and, and walking around there, if you took things personally all the time, you would just be walking around wounded constantly. So, um, so there's a certain amount of, you know, behave like a boy to be part of the boy world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, yeah, I think, you know, um, that happens sometimes too. You know, I certainly went through a period where I could, you know, I could certainly swear with the best of them. But, um, but nonetheless, I, I think, you know, as you start to, as I started to grow up, let's put it in my terms, as I started to grow up, I started to realize that, that I couldn't win at the boys game. And, um, and I was going to have to play my own game and I was going to have to be true to myself and, you know, and decide what was important to me at different points in my life as I moved forward. Um, there was a class action suit that, you know, um, by female officers that was called, um, you know, in, in the director of operations back in the early nineties, because, um, you know, they were able to show that, you know, that the women were being essentially moved from, you know, girl position to girl position, you know, around. And so, um, so the court did find in favor of the class. And so there was some remediation done at that point and, you know, and, and they were under court watch for a while, but, um, but the behaviors didn't necessarily go all the way away. Um, what I would say is that the more I grew in my leadership, the more determined I was to, um, to not turn the other cheek to some of this stuff and to, um, to pull women in and talk to them about rising up in leadership and raising their hands when they were ready and not waiting to be asked to take leadership positions. So, um, you know, I, I, I developed a theory that, you know, that we wait to be asked to go on dates. We wait to be asked to dance. We wait to be asked to be married. And then um, at work, we wait to be asked. And so, um, so I used to call, you know, women that I thought were ready for the next level of, you know, of, of basically challenge and opportunity um, in a lot and, and ask them if they were ready to step up. And, um, and, and if they weren't, you know, no harm, no foul. But what I would do is encourage them like at that point that you think you're ready, you know, don't wait to be asked. Tell them you're ready because um, I think you can wait until the end of your career and nobody will, will ask you because the people that, that want to move on are, are out there, you know, angling for the opportunity to move on. So, um, so I, I did, you know, deliberately look for ways to diversify the workforce, my leadership team. Um, you know, we had a plan and, and that didn't mean that, you know, that it wasn't, you know, I mean, people throw the word meritocracy around, which is a word I don't like very much. In fact, I don't like it at all. I think, you know, it's not, changing the standard, it's, it's widening the aperture and asking people who would not necessarily put themselves forward for the job to take a look at it. And, um, what, and about, what you, you find is that you sorry. get outstanding candidates 
And all of a sudden you look around and you realize that you've built the team that you always wanted to be part of. And the results that come out of that team are beyond your wildest expectations mm. because you've widened the aperture on, um, on who gets included. What about externally? So you've talked about what it was like uh, in early mm. days for a woman in the agency. Yeah. Internally, what about externally when you're dealing with sources and you're, you're seeking information and working with people in Latin America and or anywhere, you know, I, I didn't find that, um, that my gender was a detractor from that. In fact, I found many times it was an enhancer because I was paying better attention to them, you know? And, and so a lot of times, you know, if you think about conversations, um, you know, I mean, I joke a lot because I'm like, Oh, I'm in my fields again today. Um, but the bigger thing for me is um, it's not just what's being said. It's asking about what's not being said. And sometimes it's just saying, Hey, you know, the last time we talked, your wife wasn't feeling well, how's she doing? As opposed to, okay, so let's get down to business here. What's up? Um, you know, I mean, I think that's the piece that, uh, that maybe made it a little bit different is that, you know, I remembered all that other stuff too, mm-hmm. you know, not just the stuff that, that I needed them to do for me, but the other stuff that, that, you know, let them know that I, that they mattered to me as a human being. And I think, you know, we, we as humans all want to believe we matter to somebody, even, you know, even the, the worst of the humans still want to believe that you matter to somebody. So, um, mm-hmm. so I did not find gender to be a problem, you know, in, in that world, the gender thing actually happened, you know, I mean, you know, we're still grappling with this, this whole, you know, women in the workplace issue, you know, all these years later in the United States. Um, I will say that, you know, that, that just recently though, I mean, most of the leadership positions at the agency were filled by women. The director, we had our first, you know, female director who is, you know, from Kentucky. And so, um, and, and many, many of the senior roles at the agency were filled by women successfully. So, um, so there, there was that movement forward for sure. I think I told you that I found out that I was dating a CIA uh, officer, retired, recently yeah. retired. And um, the, the way she let me know was that she said that she took a, once took a driving course and learned how to do a one, I think she called it a 180 on the fly, which is flipping in the opposite direction. going <laughs> yeah. speed. And she described it as grabbing the steering wheel, yanking it as hard as you can. And as it starts to, to turn, letting go <laughs> of the steering wheel, and then you, you go in the opposite direction. And I thought she had described herself, uh, I think fairly typically as a foreign service, retired yeah. foreign service officer. Yeah. And I said, let's talk a little bit more about that foreign service. Yeah, why did you need that exactly? <laughs> well, now I will tell you that we took my son, um, my older, my, you know, our older son, we took him to a, um, a defensive driving course in uh, West Virginia where they taught him just that kind of stuff. And, and for him, it was really about learning the limitations of the car, mm-hmm. you know? So, so, you know, you can do it for a number of reasons. I, I would just say, um, but, you know, but primarily it's to, you know, try to figure out how to get out of a bad situation for sure. But, but I will just say to you, once you do that, they know who you are then. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so any doubt about you being anything else, 
at right. that point is gone. Okay. You have, you definitely tipped your hand. So if you're in that place, we're doing that. You have tipped your hand. So, you know, you know, and they will give chase if they can. So there you go. You know, it's kind of like, you know, turning your lights off when you see the police barricade and like, you know, doing a stealthy, you know, U-turn and then they follow you and they, you know, bust you because you know, like, right. clearly you were trying to avoid them. So, uh, you know. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate well, thanks for um, your man. generous time and uh, your insights. And <coughs> it, it truly was one of the best of our, of our Well, thank podcast, you. I mean, so. and thanks. I mean, you, you ask great questions. And so, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity to converse. And, you know, I would just say that, you know, all the thoughts and opinions are certainly, you know, mine. Um, but, uh, but I would never discourage a young person from taking a look at the agency as a place to work. I mean, I, I found it for a place that I never intended to stay. Um, I couldn't imagine working anywhere else. And so, um, and so, you know, they say that, you know, when you're ready to go and, um, you know, and, and I looked around and I couldn't imagine another job that would be nearly as exciting or fun as the job that I, I have been allowed to do. And so I knew it was time to leave because um, somebody else needed to come in and, and have that experience of that wonderful place. So, um, so that's, um, that's what I would say. Can we do another episode sometime and talk about education uh, at all, at all age ranges? Sure. Um, maybe hear some cool stories about events that we know about and get some, whatever you so can What really about. happened we call yeah, behind Harvey the page scenes. Too. Yeah, Paul Harvey. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, okay. And, but, but before we wrap up, uh, tell us your website for your coaching. Bring us back okay. to the present moment and how people can reach you and what you can help them do. So uh, I have a new website that's under development and I'm rebranding. It's um, Apex um, Coaching, Apex Leadership and Cybercoaching.com. So, um, and my, uh, my email address right now is bbstiff608 at gmail.com. But, um, but, you know, soon to be coming is this new website and it's uh, apexleadershipandcybercoaching.com. And so, um, so I'm really looking forward to, uh, to, to seeing people like come there. So um, it, it, um, it's, it's going to be pretty amazing. So. Um, let, me, let me double check with you on this because you had talked about it earlier and I had written it down. Is it not apexleadershipandcyber.com? Uh, no, That's what a I had Apex up. Leadership and Cybercoaching.com. Okay. All right. Good. So, uh, um, and it's Bonnie Stith, S T I T H. So they can look you up and find out all the, the dirt yeah. in your past by yeah, looking. Yeah, and you know how many grandchildren I have and stuff like that. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> so in in this walk of my life, it's uh, it's much more focused on, on really creating the leaders that I think people deserve to have. And, um, and helping move forward in those significant ways, you know, be a good human. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of my motto these days, be a good human. So, um, so right. thank you again. And um, I'll wrap up by reminding people about our website, thrivecolivingcommunities.org. Uh, you probably found us on YouTube, but we're also on all the pod, major podcast channels. So you can listen to it by audio and not necessarily on YouTube video. And um, we 
have these episodes of our podcast every other week, and we have a podcast alert system. Sounds like the the um, alert Campbell system. Alert. I know, right? But, Tornado went off every Saturday at noon. Yeah, exactly. Um, so look us up and uh, keep coming and listening to the podcast and watching us. So yeah. thanks again, Bonnie. And thanks, Mark. And I'll look forward to that next conversation. I'm going to hold you to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yep, I will be here. Okay. Great. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for joining this episode of the Thrive Co-Living Podcast and YouTube broadcast. To discover more about our mission and activities, please visit our website at thrivecolivingcommunities.org. There, you can also learn how you can support our creative vision in co-living communities. We also ask that you subscribe to the Thrive Co-Living Communities YouTube channel and or the Thrive Co-Living Communities podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. We will be back soon.